Blood, sweat, and tears, it all stays right here on this field right now. This is our dirt. This is our mud. This is ours, baby. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. At the top of the peak or down at sea level, I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Tune into this radio frequency modulation. This train rolls above ground, station to station, breaking down the truth like you never heard before, bringing the market smarts, ear to ear, door to door. You heard it once, you're going to hear it some more. Market dynamics changing every day and night. Defense turns to offense. Step up. It's time to fight. Time to rethink your allocation. Reset your navigation. Rebalance your positions. Understand the conditions. Market breadth is improving. Small caps started grooving. Spreads are contracting. The VIX is acting like it ain't no thing. Ring-a-ding-ding. Bond yield dropping. Tech stocks popping. We gotta keep it in perspective. No time for carelessness. Let's keep it all on track. On the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. Shake off the trick to fame, put down the stuffing, and let's get back on track. The U.S. equity markets are rolling into the home stretch of 2023 on the back of four straight weeks of gains as lower bond yields are keeping the fire burning under the stock market. Market breadth has been improving during this four-week stretch, and small caps finally joined the party with the Russell 2000 advancing half a percent last week. It doesn't sound like much because it's not, but these little baby steps for small stocks show that investors are not as worried about an economic slowdown as they were back in October. Small caps are ultra-sensitive to slowdowns, and they've been sprouting higher up as bond yields have been retreating from their recent highs. As the month of November comes to a close, investors are going to be sad to see it go. So far this month, the S&P 500 has only closed lower in three out of 19 trading sessions. At this pace, November of 2023 will be the fifth strongest November since 1928. That's 95 years if you're keeping score at home. And if you pay attention to seasonality, you'll know that this week and next are historically some of the best days of the year for stocks. The good people at Sentiment Trader call the period from the close of the 7th to last trading day of November through the close on the 3rd day of December as the November-December power period. And during this little stretch, the S&P 500 historically trades higher 76% of the time going back 72 years. Not that you should be trading in and out of the market around these seasonal pockets of strength, play the long game, and stay invested. The point is that if you're not in the market during these days of strength, you'll miss out on some of the best performing days of the year, and that will lower your long-term returns. Speaking of returns, investors are chasing them again as money keeps flowing into stocks. According to EPFR Global Data, equity exchange traded funds have pulled in $43 billion in inflows in November alone. That's the second most monthly inflows all year, and there are still a few days to go in the month. Retail investors alone bought a net $4.8 billion of equities last week, the biggest weekly inflows from folks like you and me since April of 2022. Where's the money flowing away from? Cash and tips, those treasury inflation-protected securities that were all the rage last summer when bond yields spiked and stocks spun into a correction. And that leads us directly into our big three for the week. Number one. The flippin' sentiment over the past few weeks has at least a few strategists calling for a reality check. The Bank of America strategy team led by Michael Hartnett flagged that their bull and bear indicator went from extreme bearish territory in October 
to neutral last week, and that faster move in the indicator is usually a contrarian or bearish indicator. It's even more so when money follows that sentiment at the rate that it did in the past couple of weeks. $40 billion in cash went into stocks, especially large cap tech stocks, in the past two weeks. That's the largest inflow since February of 2022. The main reason, according to B of A, most investors think the Fed is done raising interest rates. And if most people are thinking the same thing and there are no contrarians out there, these so-called bull markets and bears clothing don't usually last very long. Number two, you're looking for more signs that it's too cool and calm out there? Look at the VIX or volatility index. Just don't wake it up. The VIX, which measures the volume of options bets about the direction of the stock market over the next 30 days, ended last Friday's session at 12.46. That's the lowest close since January of 2020. Granted, most of us were sleeping off a turkey hangover on Friday, but the VIX has been in a deep sleep for the past month. It has fallen 41% over the past four weeks, the ninth largest four-week decline in history. When the VIX is this low, it's a sign that investors and traders are betting on more gains for the stock market, more calls than puts, so to speak. According to Bloomberg, hedging demand, or bets that investors make to protect their downside as the market rises, has fallen precipitously in the past few weeks as well. The cost to protect against a market sell-off has fallen by around 10% or one standard deviation in trader speak to the lowest it has ever been on record going all the way back to 2013 when they first started keeping track of this stuff. What are hedge funds, mutual fund managers, and big institutional investors betting on? More big gains for the big mega cap tech stocks. If everyone's thinking the same thing, what are we not thinking about? And number three, if you think you're a great stock picker, then you should take a good look at the stocks that have posted the best two-year run to see which companies have actually held up the best through the bear-to-bull market swing since the beginning of 2022. A lot of big and popular stocks like Meta, Tesla, NVIDIA have had an incredible year this year. But the smart folks at Bespoke Investment Group looked at which stocks in the Russell 3000, that's an index of the largest 3,000 stocks in the U.S., to find the best two-year performers. Which stocks have been the most resilient and are up more than 75% or more since the beginning of 2022? I gotta say, I wasn't familiar with any of these names. Here are the top five. Super Microcomputer, up 583% the past two years. Limbach, that's an industrial company, up 455%. Genie Energy, up 433%. Dorian LPG, 430%. Simabay Therapeutics, 370%. We're going to post a list to the full link of these winners in the show notes, but it goes to show that it's really hard to pick winners every year and even harder over a multi-year stretch. You can try or you can let it ride on the indexes. The NASDAQ 100 is up 50% this year and the S&P 500 is up more than 20%. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Let's get set up for the week ahead, and it's back to business. We're going to get a trailer load of economic reports this week, including updates on new home sales, consumer confidence, construction spending, and the latest reading on the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index. That's the Fed's preferred gauge of inflation. We're looking for a slight rise over the past month, somewhere in the 0.2% range, which would bring the PCE in at an annual rate of 3.5%. Anything at or below that will pretty much guarantee that the Fed will not raise rates one last time when it meets in mid-December. We'll get the Fed's latest beige book update, it's actually red, on Wednesday, and that will have interesting nuggets of data from the Fed's regional banks on economic activity. We're also going to get updates on the big holiday shopping weekend. Thanksgiving Day sales came in at around $5.4 billion, according to Adobe, and Black Friday sales topped $9.8 billion, a 7.5% increase from last year. Betting against the U.S. consumer is usually a bad bet, no matter the fact that consumer sentiment has declined for four straight months and credit card debt is at a 
record high. We will not be denied. The earnings calendar will be light, but we'll get report cards from widely held companies, including Salesforce, Dell Technologies, and Snowflake, among others. The corporate events calendar will be pretty busy, however. Amazon will host its Invent conference this week, and we should expect some announcements on how the online giant is using AI to sell us more things. And get ready for Tesla's Cybertruck. Really, we mean it this time. Tesla will hold an event at its Gigafactory in Austin to mark the first official deliveries of the Cybertruck. Let's hope the windows don't break this time. Elon Musk says the company is targeting production of 200,000 Cybertrucks per year. And all eyes will be on OPEC and its allies this week, the group known as OPEC+. Plus. They'll be meeting this Thursday to talk about production cuts to stabilize the price of oil, which has fallen 10% in the past six weeks. Keep in mind that this meeting was supposed to take place last week, but was rescheduled reportedly because of a developing rift between Saudi Arabia and other producers about just how much oil to cut. OPEC Plus has already announced cuts this year, led by Saudi Arabia and Russia, and the likelihood is that the group, which does not include the United States, by the way, will extend cuts into 2024. Hey folks, it's Hunter Lewis, Editor-in-Chief of Food & Wine. This fall, we're launching the new Food & Wine Classic in Charleston with our partners at Southern Living Travel and Leisure, and we want to see you there. This incredible three-day culinary experience will showcase the hospitality, food, drinks, and culture of one of our favorite cities in the country. Join us September 27th to 29th to learn more from iconic chefs, share a glass with innovative wine experts, and get to know Charleston with one-of-a-kind experiences curated by the experts at Food & Wine, Southern Living, and Travel and Leisure. Tickets are on sale now at foodandwine.com forward slash Charleston Classic. That's foodandwine.com forward slash Charleston Classic. See you down in Charleston. Very few firms have their finger on the pulse of retirement and the management of our assets than BlackRock. With over $8.5 trillion under management, BlackRock is a giant in investment services. Its defined contribution plans are used by over 60% of Fortune 100 companies, reaching more than 40 million Americans. It's iShares ETF business. With over 800 products, including some of the most widely held ETFs among retail investors, has over $2 trillion in assets alone. You want to know how we really feel about our money and how we express those feelings? through our retirement assets, ask BlackRock, which is exactly what we're going to do because Ann Ackerley is joining the podcast. Ann is a managing director and the head of BlackRock's retirement group, and she is our very special guest this week on The Express. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. You have built your entire career basically in this business, so I would love to know your definition of retirement. Does it mean the same thing to you at least than it did 20, 30 years ago? Great question. You know, I tell people I spend all day, every day thinking about retirement, not necessarily my own, but, you know, millions and millions of people whose money we manage. I would say two things about retirement. One, it's deeply personal. You know, for each person, they have a different dream, hopes and challenges. But two, it's also evolving. And in some ways, that's scary, but it's also exciting. And I would just mention you know, why is it evolving? Well, you know, we're living longer and it is a great thing, but it's happened so fast. You know, if you look at the 20th century, we went from like 47 years to 79 years in the really short period of time when you think about the history of people kind. And so we're just needing to catch up. And I think retirement today actually does look somewhat like before, meaning the average age of retirement hasn't really changed. 
And yet we're living so much longer. So it's lasting much, much longer. And we've got to figure out like, what do we want to do with those years? And how do we finance those years? Yeah. How do we actually pay? What is the cost of being us into those years? Well, let's start with some sober news because it's all around us, especially this time of year. We hear studies about people not having enough, worried about financial stress going into the holidays, not having enough for an emergency savings. You came out with a study earlier this year, your read on retirement, folks, we'll link to it in the show notes, that showed that only 56% of Americans feel like they're on track for retirement. That was 11% lower than 2022. Now, granted, we were coming off a pretty brutal bear market from 2022, but bear markets, and as you know, they're a feature of investing. They're not a bug. They're not an anomaly. Why do nearly half of Americans or more than half feel they're unprepared? Well, I think one of the main reasons is actually we are seeing a market regime change and the high inflation and the market volatility did get to people. And yes, I know for those of us who are in the best investing world, we see bull and bear markets. But you know, people aren't necessarily used to, and, and in particular, high inflation really caused people to be concerned about the value of the money, prices going into retirement expenses, and just again, this market volatility. And if you're getting close to retirement and the market's really changing much more rapidly than it has been, it can be very scary. And so, yes, we saw a big decline in terms of people's confidence. Yeah. So confidence declines. And people say one thing, though, and sometimes do another. We see that all the time in investing. It's part of behavioral investing. That's just the way we are with our money. So how have retail investors inside and outside of the defined benefit plans at BlackRock been behaving this year amid these high interest rates, the sticky high inflation, and just that general angst? It's kind of like a bull market that uh, nobody wants to admit to in a lot of ways. So what I would say is, I think you were exactly right, of people expressing lack of confidence or a lot less confidence, but that actually didn't translate into changes within the 401k. And so one of the good things, I guess, about the 401k is that people tend to leave that money invested. And for many people, that money is invested in a target date fund, which is designed to help people through these market challenges. And it's a very long-term investment. So yes, they're concerned, but we didn't see a whole lot of trading. We didn't see people flooding to cash within the 401k. Outside the 401k, what we call independent savers, right? If people don't have access to a 401k, and we can talk about that, you see a lot more people in cash and staying there. Now that's probably okay right now, given where cash money market levels are, 5%. But really, we want to see those people invested too in target dates in particular, because this is for really, really like when you think of long term investing, retirement is probably your longest term investing. Absolutely. You guys, I know, came out with a new ETF that does mimic a target date fund. We'll get to that in a second. But you also, to the 401k point, you came out with another study with 401k provider human interest that showed that workers that don't have the 401k save one eighth of those that did. Independent savers, you call them, but that's nearly two thirds of American actually do have the 401k, 68 million people or so. There's another 30 to 40 million people that don't and probably growing. So how do we incentivize the freelancers, the independent contractors, the gig workers, the part-timers to save and invest more if they don't have that automatic nudge through the paycheck and through the 401k program? Right. Estimates are actually as high as 57 million Americans 
don't have access to a 401k. And it is focused a lot on the private sector, almost half of private sector workers. So yes, it's gig workers, it's part-time workers, it's often people in retail and service. It is a very big issue that they don't have access. And and yet we know when you have access, you're 15 to 20 times more likely. I would say a couple things with respect to, again, we call them independent savers in terms of the incentive. You know, one of the things we've actually tried to do is figure out how we can get more employers to offer the plans. And so we did make an investment in human interest. It's an online 401k provider that makes it easy, simple, and affordable for small employers to offer 401k plans. It's like two clicks for the employer, two clicks for the employees. So I think finding ways to use technology to get more employers to do it, and as you know, in the United States, it's it's purely voluntary. But other ways, if you don't have a 401k, it's trying to make sure people have the tools and the investment solutions that they can do it themselves. And so, yes, we did launch a target date ETF, which is available to everyone. You can use it in your IRA and your taxable account. And again, with the concept of easy, simple, affordable, tax efficient, if, if you're in a taxable account, you know, do it for me. So have somebody do all the asset allocation and the investment, and you just have to buy one investment solution. Yeah, I was going to ask why bring that to the retail market. But when you look at the popularity of ETFs, especially through the iShares business, but through the entire ETF ecosystem, kind of makes sense. There's an ETF for everything. There might as well be an ETF for a target date fund. Let's talk about ETFs because you were part of the global client group. You oversaw the launch of the iShares ETF business. That turned into an enormous business and a huge brand that a lot of retail investors like me, like our listeners, we interact with it. What can you tell us about our behavior around ETFs as individual and retail investors, especially as of the last couple of years? Right. I did actually, uh, I was very involved in that transaction where we merged with iShares and brought that investment into the BlackRock family. I'd love to say that I knew ETFs were going to take off. I knew they were going to be an important vehicle. I, I don't know that I knew at the time just how much they would grow, but they make a ton of sense for people. You just said it yourself. Like, you can access it in your brokerage account. It's $25 minimum, and they can give you market exposure in a really simple way. You know, I think people in the retail market use it in different ways. But again, we're trying to urge people to make them, particularly when saving for retirement, make long term investments, right? Get market exposure and stay invested. We have lots of ETFs that we call precision. We tend to think that's more for the institutional investor where they're trying to get a very sliver of market exposure. We like our retail investors and our core products getting broad market exposure. Yeah, we do know institutions also are heavy users of ETFs, both on the just on the holding side, but also on the trading side. But it has become an avenue for millions and millions of investors to approach the market outside of the classic mutual fund ecosystem there. All right, let's talk a little bit about people nearing retirement and retirees who are on that fixed income or getting close to it. The bond market has been absolutely brutal over the past three years. You know that well. That was supposed to be a safe haven and a place to migrate assets for protection as we get older, the other side of the barbell, so to speak. What's your advice to those people who been punished for playing it safe or adhering to that strategy? Does this come around eventually? Or is this 
a new dynamic in the capital markets that we have to wake up to, especially those of us of a certain age and getting into or into retirement. Let me make a few comments about people nearing retirement and in retirement. And I think the system, and when I say the system, 401ks have done a pretty good job in terms of trying to get people to retirement, right? We have target dates, we auto-enroll, we auto-escalate, we're really helping people save and invest. What I think the industry needs to focus on now more is, you know, what happens in retirement? What is that spend down? And, you know, we're working on an investment solution really to try to help people have a lot more certainty. So a couple comments, the bond market has been brutal. Ultimately, higher rates will be helpful for people in retirement. If you go back, it used to be you could have a lot more bonds in your portfolio and you could be earning a really nice return on that. Once the bond market stabilizes, which we might be getting close to, bonds will be good. They will be giving people a nice yield. But absolutely, it has been very tough for people near retirement. And as we think about, well, what can people do? I think people need to think about, again, we're going to live longer. Can you delay retirement? That's not an option for everybody. Not everybody wants to do it. But those are the sorts of things we need to look at. I would also just mention, as we think about spending in retirement, we're not an insurance company, but I do think people should be looking at, can they get more protected income as they get closer to retirement? And again, rising rates help annuities. The payout will be higher in this uh, higher rate environment. Yeah. And there's money in the bank if you just want to park it there for a while. But we've been talking about this whole spend down notion with a lot of our guests recently, because I think that is sometimes the overlooked part of retirement. There's been a lot of conversations, 4%, 8%, 6%. You said it at the top. Retirement is personal. We call it personal finance for a reason. So what may work for me may not work for you and others. There's a lot of questions around that. So you've had an incredible career as a woman in finance. You co-founded BlackRock's Women's Network and the Financial Inclusion Network over there. That shows your passion for helping more women make a career in this industry. What more can we be doing to empower that, to show women that there is a great career path in finance and get more women into it? I've had a great career in finance. I've I've loved it. I'd like to think it's a place where I have been able to come and to do well and do good. I do focus a lot on financial inclusion and making sure that women, people of color have access to financial instruments. Women and and people of color often don't have access to 401ks. It's, you know, a function of the companies they often work for. And we're really focused on, can we make this a much more inclusive access to solutions? But specifically about getting women into finance, two things come to mind. One is the importance of role models. And you can't be it if you can't see it. And so I think when young women look up, they need to make sure they're seeing women in important positions. And I try to be out there talking to young women all the time. I think the second thing is there's a big discussion, ongoing discussion right now about we've come out of COVID and is is there going to be hybrid working? Does hybrid working help women? And I think we need to figure out again, you know, there are times when women some women, not all women, do need to have childcare or those sorts of things. How do we help them stay working so they can have great careers and great families? Of course, that would be a good thing for men too. 
But those are some of the things that I, I think a lot about and I'm very passionate that more women should come into finance. You kind of took a classical path, MBA, went to Harvard. If you were coming out now, would it be the MBA? Would it be a CFA? Would it be some sort of work in data or AI if you were coming into this business right now as a young woman? You know, the AI piece and the data piece is going to be so big that I probably, as a young woman, would think a lot about, do I have the skills to work there? I would say I'm a general fan of the MBA and getting broad exposure to, you know, how do you manage? How do you do strategy? How do you do marketing operations? So I, I think you could go either way, but certainly I think women who have experience with data and AI will be in such demand in the next few years. I would tell you I have two kids, neither one is interested in finance, so I'm not sure I did a great job at home. Yeah, I, I got a poet and an actress, so uh, they're not necessarily following me, but you never know what careers could turn into. I was an art major myself. So you talked about influences, you talked about the importance of seeing people, especially women for other women who are actually doing it. Who is one of your greatest influences in your career? My mom has had a great influence on me. She was widowed with four kids when she was 30. And so she's always taught me the importance of working hard, getting a good education. She was a teacher and she role modeled what it is to work. So she's one. I really view her as kind of my hero and my inspiration. And when she was 65 and she wanted to retire and you know, she realized BlackRock managed her money. She would always say to me, you know, you better make sure that money is managed well, Anne, because I worked really hard for it. I also worked for an amazing woman coming right out of school at Merrill Lynch, who similarly taught me that you can be a great career person and you can be a, a mom too, and was very authentic. And I really have modeled myself after her. Terry Lang, a shout out to her, was one of my first bosses in investment banking. Yeah, so good to have those people, those North Stars who are helping guide you along the way. Well, you know, Anne, that we are a website built on our definitions and our financial terms. You are the head of retirement at BlackRock, one of the largest financial institutions on the planet, probably in the galaxy. I would love to know Anne Ackerley's favorite investing or finance term. My favorite term is compounding. Critically important. Yes, 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 you need to save, save early, save often. We say it all the time, but invest and let the markets work for you and get that power of compounding. It's the word I love. You know, if we could have all started saving when we were 20, 22, rather than the average age, which is, you know, mid thirties, we would have gotten the, the importance and, and the power of compounding. So that's my favorite word. Yeah, it's one of our favorites too. And there's a reason Einstein called it the ninth wonder of the world. It is magic, but magic needs time. So thank you so much. Anne Ackerley, the head of retirement at BlackRock. Thanks so much for joining the Express. We appreciate you. Thanks so much for having me. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week, we're going to mix it up. We're going to call out a person who had a huge influence on economic theory in the 20th century who you may not be aware of. 
His name is Arthur Okun, and he had a gift for taking economic concepts and giving them labels that accurately conveyed the essence of the concepts he was explaining, and we still use them today. In 1962, he created Okun's Law, which showed that a 1% increase in unemployment would cut GDP by 2.5 percentage points. He also created the Economic Discontent Index, later changed to the Misery Index, which he created by adding the unemployment rate to the inflation rate. And in 1975, Okun created the so-called Leaky Budget Analogy, which explains why a tax-to-transfer resources doesn't deliver the full amount of the tax as a benefit. Money spills out of the bucket in the form of the cost to administer the tax, tax avoidance, and tax loopholes. These seem like simple concepts, but until Okun named them and made them mainstream, they were often overlooked. Shout out to Arthur Oaken and shout out to Mark Rippey, who flagged Oaken's achievements in a tweet this weekend. Thanks for riding with us this week, and special thanks to Anne Ackerley from BlackRock for climbing aboard the Express. We'll link to BlackRock's Retirement Resource Center so you can see how one of the largest asset managers on the planet invests your money, and we'll link to all the other reports we cited on this here episode. Find those in the show notes wherever you ride the Express, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line.